Hey everyone, uh, Robert Polly here with what I am going to call a Thanksgiving offering for you online listeners. A piece uh, that dates back to my early phase of radio hosting and radio interviewing. Uh, this one from 2006, in which I uh, interviewed Richard Ford, the writer. Uh, he had just come out with a new novel at that time, the third in his trilogy of novels featuring the protagonist and uh, narrator Frank Bascom. Frank being Richard's uh, greatest creation, I think, and uh, really one of the most fully realized and richly drawn characters in the whole tradition of American fiction. I don't think that's an over-the-top statement, really. Uh, The reason I am excavating this interview, and the reason why I just finished listening to it myself after all these years, is that Richard has now come out with a new book of uh, Frank Bascom short stories. It's entitled, Let Me Be Frank With You. A lot of people thought he was over and done with the character, but not so. I am hoping to land an interview with Richard uh, to talk about the new book, but I may not. In any case, I was kind of curious to know uh, what was said in this earlier conversation. I'd forgotten a lot of it. And uh, in listening, I was pleasantly surprised to find out that uh, though old, it really isn't dated. It's full of good stuff. Uh, interesting insights into Richard as a writer and Richard as a person, into uh, the character of Frank Bascom and into the character of Richard Ford. Uh, It was kind of funny to hear my radio style, too, which was a lot more restrained in those days. But I think it it worked on this occasion uh, to draw Richard out. Uh, And uh, in addition, uh, when I started listening, I suddenly realized that this aired uh, originally eight years ago to this very day, November 27th, and that the uh, novel we were talking about is set during Thanksgiving. Cool coincidences, and all the more reason to uh, dust this thing off and share it with you guys now. Richard Ford, welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you, Robert. It's a pleasure. So now we've had three novels about Frank Bascom, uh, visiting him at uh, roughly 10-year intervals, at various stages of his life. And like a geologist, he has names for these stages. Yes, he does. Not the Permian and Devonian, but the... <laughs> the permanent and the existence and the, the period of dreaminess. Yeah. Dreaminess was the first in The Sports Writer. Right. His, his son had died. he just gotten a divorce and was at loose ends. That's exactly true. Independence Day, the middle novel, it's the existence period. Right. Can you describe I what he meant by I that? I can't. I don't remember it, to be perfectly honest with you. I... Uh, it evanesced somehow or other out of my brain after I invented it. It went away. You know, it's, it's, it, uh, people are sometimes surprised when you, and I'm sure it's true of my, all of my colleagues, that somebody will ask you a question about something that happened in the story you wrote 20 years ago, such as its title, and I can't remember it. And they always say, I can't believe that you can't remember the title to your own story. And I think, well... I believe it. And, and, and two, it wasn't written for me. It was written for you. That's why you remember it. Now, in, in, in starting your third installment of uh, the Frank Bascom cycle, though, didn't you have to go back and reread the earlier ones just to make sure you got the facts straight? Um, I kind of did a, a half-ass on that I, I, because I was, I, was, I was wary, I think, of, of being too affected in writing this book um, by the previous books. What I did was I kind of did a harrowing through those books 
and and tried to find things that I wanted either to make continuous characters that I wanted to make continuous or or things that I hadn't really successfully taken up in those books that I thought I would try to take up in this third book. Well, setting aside the existence period for the mm-hmm. moment, <laughs> let's talk about the permanent period. This is the period that Frank's passing through in the current novel, The That's Lay right. of the Land. That's right. And what does the permanent period mean to him? Well, the permanent period is that period in your life, and it happens to occur in Frank's life around the age he is, 55, and and basically the 10 years before being 55, when he believes you've got to start living for the moment, when you have to start um, letting the past be less uh, a presence in your in your day-to-day existence and when also as he gets further into the uh, to the end of the permanent period when you have little so little life left that he believes you can't screw it up anymore this that most of your life um in a, chronologically has already been lived and, and and so you should he feels f- be freed by these these observations and uh putting the past in the past and keeping it there yes. isn't so easy well, it, no, but it doesn't mean it isn't worth trying to do. Uh, it, it isn't easy, and, and and probably, you know, there's a kind of um, Emersonian contradiction in 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 that because you would like to be aware enough of your past that you don't repeat your hideous mistakes from then, and yet you would also like to be um, free enough from your past so that you're not constantly thwarted by your previous mistakes. So, I mean, it's. It's a balancing act, and I, I think that a reader might read about the, the permanent period and and want to argue with it a little bit, as as people have with me sometimes. And, and and that's fine if they want to argue with me, and it's fine if they want to say, well, Ford, you think the permanent period exists, or Frank does, but it doesn't. And, and for me, that's fine, because it, it has served its purpose by my bringing it into existence and by someone having to test their life against it. Mm-hmm. Well, by Frank's definition, keeping the past in the past means that the dead have to stay dead, hmm. and in this book, they don't. No, they no, they they don't. Um, but one of the things that he says, as regards Wally, who comes back nominally from the dead, uh, is that um, the past should stay past. The the dead should stay and let the land lie flat around them. Uh, I, but but you can't keep that from happening in your life. Well, I, some people have said to me that the the passage in this book in which Wally comes back seems to them to just be kind of dazzlingly um, unlikely. But but when I wrote it, it was one of not only the easiest things in the book to write having had myself no experience of any kind like this. But it also seemed to me to be perfectly plausible under the rubric that if I can say it, it can happen. Mm. That's generally the way I decide whether something is plausible or not. If, can I say it? Hmm. Can I say it to myself and have it seem you know, not completely ludicrous? And having Wally come back from the dead um, seemed completely logical to me that you, you all you have to do is just read those little short outtakes in the newspaper every day and you see a lot stranger things happening mm-hmm. we should explain that that wally is the first husband of frank's current wife who um disappeared when she was younger and uh, was presumed dead which is how frank came to marry her uh who then returns yes and shakes everything up yes moves into the moves period for a period into the house with him and there's there's other 
indications of the dead coming back to life. I mean, we have Revolutionary War reenactors who are shot dead and then yes. stand up and walk around. Which I think is just in there for, for yucks, frankly. Yeah. I mean, the book really is, if it succeeds at all, a very funny book. It makes me laugh. If I were to read passages of it now, um, I think it would make me laugh still. In the, in the darkest days of finishing it, when I really had hardly any humor left, it could still make me laugh. What parts make you laugh? Well, the reenactor's part, that always makes me laugh. The Frank just has a lot of asides that I think are, are actually quite quite funny. Um, some of his more drastic responses to things make me make me laugh. The sense of outrage that he feels about his fate these days always makes me laugh. Mm-hmm. The most important death, I think, uh, that 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 uh, rears its head is is the death of his son Ralph, who died many years prior, and who Frank thought he'd gotten over mourning. That's right, and he hasn't at all. That's right. Um, that was a kind of intuitive. Um, you can't. I couldn't really call it a decision. It was sort of an intuitive uh, stroke in the book. There was a moment when, in which I was writing about Frank after having been in a, a lesbian bar and walking out into the night crying. And making him cry was something that just happened spontaneously when I was writing it. And I think if I hadn't liked it, I would have actually erased it and rubbed it out. But when I got him in the car... At to what I thought was a critical moment in which he would ask himself, you know, I'm crying. I'm not a man who cries. Why am I crying? The only thing that, that made any sense to me was that he's crying because finally he's being released from a life of non-acceptance of his young son's death many years before. Now, I, now this is this is this is not Kubler Ross work on my part. You know, I I don't. I mean, I've had a lot of death in my life. There's no doubt about that. But um, I, I was just. I don't. I don't have children, so I never had a son to die. So I was just kind of going on dead reckoning there in a way, mm-hmm. uh, um, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, that um, if you had a son to die. What would you do after the first eclat of grief wore off? Well, you'd accommodate it. You'd make up a life that was sort of built around that insisted fact in your life. And you might, as Frank says he does, you might make a perfectly good life, as he says. But fundamentally, you wouldn't be exactly over it. Maybe you never get over it. What Frank's working on, it seems like, in every one of these books is... Simply put, just trying to be happy. That's exactly right. Um, the Declaration of Independence, which is actually mentioned in the the middle novel, mm-hmm. Independence Day, you know, has that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, which is really American. Um, I don't think it existed in anybody else's founding documents before the Declaration of Independence. Certainly not in the French, where we which we borrowed ours from. Exactly. What has been the onus on the American psyche of having to pursue happiness? Well, it, that's that's well said, and it, and it is the underpinning of the political aspects of this of this novel, The Lay of the Land, and and it is that Americans feel uh, that they have a right to be happy, and they pursue that right with a vengeance, and they particularly pursue it um, with the excesses of modern 
particularly suburban life. Big cars, lots of them. Big box stores, lots of them. A lot of um, mammon, and just mm-hmm. everybody consumed with that. Um, you know, having a holiday home, going on long trips. In other words, people are pretty furious about their wishes to be happy and to enjoy themselves. And and one of and as I say, it's the, one of the political um, tangents of this book. It it, it is that. That, that we are so socked into our apparent right to be happy that we don't pay attention to what's going on around us. And it was the fact that we didn't pay attention to what's going on around us as as 2000 came along and ended that we ended up in the mess that we're in now. And because we were not paying attention to what was going on around us, by which I mean, you know, our public servants weren't, ourselves weren't, um, that we had 9-11. And this novel is a precursor to 9-11, and, and in its kind of sweet and slightly um, um, pastoral way, in a sense, uh, is an indictment of American society in that way, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for being so nosed down to what we think are the most important things, indeed, so much so that we miss the really important thing. Mm-hmm. Even Frank, who, who loves real estate, he's a realtor, loses his stomach for it. Somewhat, Somewhat, this time around. Somewhat, somewhat. The property value is going up. But I made him do that. I, I, I made him do that. Maybe maybe a reflection of me not wanting to write about it anymore. You know, I thought I'd just about shot my bolt writing about real estate. And, and when, when I shot my bolt on it, it began to seem kind of natural that Frank could, in fact, lose his own interest in his vocation, which I think happens to people yeah. Now, now in in his own pursuit of happiness, Frank works hard at managing, managing his thoughts, what he thinks about. He makes statements about controlling the memory. Yeah. He actually advises someone uh, that uh, getting along is a matter of sort of telling your memory what to remember and what not to remember. That's right. I mean, he's he's all about containment and... Uh, and, well, he's, uh, he's, well, you could put it that way. That would make him seem like a control freak, which I don't think he is very successful at, even if he would want to be one. But, but, but he's more, I think, trying to live a life that he would c- consider responsible, uh-huh. responsible to himself, responsible to others. I think he thinks that his, that, 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 that his vocation is a vocation which helps people, tries to be a better parent in spite of... Um, the unruliness of his children. Um, so so I, I think, yes, he does try to control his life, but I, but I, I don't know anybody who doesn't. Well, you've made this what seems like a very dramatic contrast between Frank's overflowing inner life, um, which consists of nonstop observation, nonstop theorizing, and the face he presents to the world, which often consists of flat platitudes and... Um, well, he himself says of himself and how others might perceive him, Frank rhyming with blank, that he puts out this facade. Did I say that? He was a little worried about how people might see him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm, it seems as though he's uh, he's not revealing too much of that inner self to, to other people. You can't see a whole lot from the curb, as he might say, of some of his properties. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Um don't know what I can say about that, other than that he is a man who wishes that 
the institutions in his life worked a little better than they do work. Some of those institutions being not just governmental, but the institutions of memory, the institutions of one's own history, um, the institutions of of the sort of little koans of received wisdom, which he repairs to in reading Emerson and James, and uh, they aren't all platitudinous. I mean, they are. They maybe are a little um, boilerplate, but even though they are boilerplated in his brain, and he tries to make them work, I don't know that I would say that they were platitudinous. Only I'm thinking of those instances when one of the other characters wants a connection with him, and Frank puts on a smile and says things like great, terrific, you know, uh, steady as she goes, uh, that kind of stuff, which exasperates some of these characters. Yes. But but that just seems to me to be, not not that I think it's, it's an argument for the, these strategies being successful in the novel. They may or may not be, but it is certainly a quality of his, of his um, creator that, that, that I try to put a nice um, put a nice platitudinous um, sugar coat on things to sort of keep myself at what I want to be doing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you find it uh, affecting people around you the same way as... Oh, it seems to work perfectly. <laughs> See, that's one of the advantages. It's one of the advantages to being a Southerner. You know, I have I have very nice manners because I was raised by people who cared about having very nice manners. And they, they're, a wonderful, they're a wonderful defense against intrusion. Well, Frank has these defenses, but in this novel, more than the previous ones, there's always been an element of um, deliberate mischief, messing with people's heads, and this time he really gets naughty. In what way are you thinking? In what way am I thinking? I'm thinking about how he, quote, queers the the real estate deal that his his employee, Mike, is about to to close. I'm thinking about how he... um, kind of starts a fight in a bar. I'm thinking about... Well, uh, I, I have an explanation for each of those, though. It starting the fight in the bar was, was, just, was just his willingness to sort of take up the cudgels with the Republicans. Yeah. So I, I think that that's entirely earned. Uh, and, and queering the deal with the, with, uh, with the uh, prospective real estate clients, I, I think that was just uh, nutty exuberance on, on his part. I don't think it was real mischief making. I don't. I, it never occurred to me that he was trying to wreck that deal at all. I thought you deliberately gave him a real perverse streak this time around. Oh no, I don't think he has a perverse streak. I, I think he is. Um, I mean, he may do some things that are that are counterproductive, as you're as you're pointing out. But I don't. I don't see him to have a per- perverse streak at all, except in the in the way that we all have a certain kind of perversity in us, if you choose to call it that, which is to say, all of our plans don't always work out because our follow through isn't perfect. But but the scene that you're describing, uh, I I can almost put myself into the, into the frame of mind that I was in when I wrote it, and it was just it was just manufactured exuberance because I, I don't see looked at sort of as though I didn't write it. I, I don't see that he would have anything to gain from screwing up that deal. Well, he wanted to punish the prospective right. buyer just a little bit. But I, I, I don't see, to me, that isn't perversity. Uh, for whatever are his motives, I don't think he would have ever expected it to turn out the way 
it did turn out. I guess I'm a little more of an innocent about these things. This is really interesting. Well, I sometimes think uh, the more complex and full of life a novel is, the less we should expect its own author to to consciously know everything that's in it. Well, as long as it doesn't reveal a terrible ignorance on the, on the author's <laughs> part. I, <laughs> I, once was, I once was talking to a man in, in um, Austria at the ambassador's house a few years ago, and he was a very estimable literary critic. And so he was asking me about Independence Day, and, and, he, and he had some theories that he was trying out on me. And, and he would ask me these, these questions, which were quite thorny and theoretical. And I would say, mm, gee, you know, I never thought of that. I, it, that's, it, it's, it's interesting. I'd say, hmm, that's, that's, hmm, never quite got to that point of thinking about it. And finally, just threw up his hands and he says, he said, it's always a mistake, he said, to meet the author of a book that you, that you particularly like. And I said, look, I said, you're not telling me anything new. I said, um, I always assume that when people like my books, they will be very disappointed when they meet me. And Frank has become, uh, by virtue of, you know, the sheer number of pages, the sheer number of readers, and the length of time over which you've dwelt with this character, he's become public property. A lot of people feel they know this guy. Well, that's my good fortune. That's my, that's my good fortune, and, it, 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 and I take some actual serious pleasure from that. I mean, one would like to write a book, or gosh, three books, that that found a place in a readership's um, sense of who people are and what this country is. Yeah. So that just seems to me to be dumb luck on my part, although I worked real hard. But your creation has wandered out of the lab into the village. That's right. And people are coming back and telling you things about what he did. At least it's not a monster, though. <laughs> that's right. But see, that's that that's... That's appropriate, I, I, I think. Um, all people like me want readers to do is read all the words. And if you read all the words, then you do fall heir to the book, in a sense. And when you come back and you say things to me, it, that's just the book inducing a conversation that, that literary novels want to do. I mean, you, you seem to me to be completely in, completely in control of the facts. <laughs> you just see the facts a little differently from how I do, but I think that that's okay. Well, see, I just read them, you know, very recently. Well, you I maybe wrote them last year. It's been too long for you. <laughs> now, now, speaking of, of the perversity uh, that I believe Frank has and that you <laughs> don't believe he has, he has this habit of instantly summing people up, sizing them up, reading them, at least he thinks so, from their socks to the top of their head to their innermost thoughts. Right. And I'd like you to uh, read just a little bit. This is one example among many of, of Frank um, taking the measure of someone he's just met. Okay. Tom Binavale enfolds my hand in his big hairy one, his palms as soft as a puppy's belly, and he transmits an amiable, sweet, minty smell I recognize as spearmint. He's applied something lacquerish to his forehead, bordering hair that makes it practically sparkle. The prospect that Benavalli might represent shadowy upstate connections isn't unthinkable, but face-to-face -face with him, my guess is not. My guess is Montclair State, marketing BA, a tour with Uncle Sam, then home to work for the old man in the wholesale nursery business in West Amwell. Married, then kids, then out on his own, tearing up turf and looking around for new business opportunities. He's probably 40, drives his caddy to mass, drinks a little Amarone and a little schnapps, plays racquetball, pumps minor iron, puts out the odd chimney fire and voted for Bush but wouldn't actually hurt a centipede. 
which is no reason to go into business with him. So, so there we have Frank Bascom. He's just met a guy, and here he is pretty much constructing an entire biography. That's right. Um, pretty reductive way of approaching I, people. I wouldn't agree to that at no? all. No. No? Not at all. So is that the way you do it? That's the way Frank does it. What would Frank... It's the way, it's the way I make Frank do it. What would Frank say if he met you? What would he... Well, that's... That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious how that that uh, that eye of his would just you know latch on to certain features. Uh, he's he looks at clothes. He looks at. Uh, um, uh, he would probably describe me the, the way I describe myself to myself. That's how he would describe me. Care to share that with us? No. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, but I don't. But back to the issue of its being reductive. Um, it's reductive insofar as it leaves. It, it doesn't include every single detail of his, of his clothing and and every single detail of every single hair on his head and everything one could possibly know about him. But it is a thing I believe that we that we do. Maybe in California you don't do it, but in the rest of America we do. Which is to say that we try to get a feel for somebody so we can go go on forward and know them better based upon the, the organizable first impressions that we have. Um, you know, I come from a family who, where my father was a traveling salesman and my grandfather was a hotel man. So, I mean, I, I really do think I probably look at people the way they look at they looked at people, um, not that they had the, the the habit of language, which which I had, but but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get to know who I'm who I'm approaching and who's approaching me, and that's one of the ways I do it. And I'm perfectly happy as as Frank does throughout through the course of the book to give most of those you know early um, impressions away. Yeah, well, when it comes to constructing Frank, which you did and have done repeatedly. You make choices. You choose what kind of guy he's going to be. At least That's you, right. I assume you choose things that you'd prefer he be over other things. Yes, I mean, I don't want him to be a, a bastard, for instance. Right, right. And he's very likable in some ways. Although in this book, again, um, an angry side shows up. Uh, pugnacious say, side. Pugnacious, okay. So he does start a fight in a bar, which I don't believe he'd well, done. Well, he didn't start previously. a fight. He was, he was actually set upon by another human being. So that... People who start fights are the people who throw the first punch. He knows how to cut to the quick, verbally. (laughs) And he does that on several occasions in this book. He very much dislikes this guy. Yeah, yeah. And he's a Republican. Now, I remember a long-ago essay by by you about your own past as a a brawler. Oh, it's in The New Yorker. It's called called In the Face. In the Face, yeah. Yeah. That was, what, maybe 15 years ago? No, not not that long ago. Uh Probably no more than 10. And if I remember that essay right, you didn't have an explanation. You just sort of said, this is some property of me, and that's... Yeah. Well, I have some explanations, but my grandfather was a professional prize fighter. Yeah. And so that that's... I mean, to hit, I mean just to return to that essay for a moment, at that time in my life, to, to be hit in the face by somebody or to return to hit somebody in, in the face was not an unthinkable thing to me. Yeah. And that was not that long ago. Oh, no, it hasn't been very long ago since that happened to me. Really? No. How did that come about? Oh, I mean, given your gracious courtly manners. happens, I guess you could say. Well, my gracious courtly manners will only take me so far. (laughs) 
<laughs> Would this have been a Republican sitting next to you in a bar, perhaps? Uh, no, no, it was a guy in this instance, um, at least the one I'm willing to tell you about, uh, um, whose dog was barking all night and keeping me up. And I went across the street after having had a glass of gin and spoke to my neighbor. And then one thing led to another, and he clouded me and broke my jaw. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing you're a writer, not, say, a radio host. Oh, that wouldn't work with radio <laughs> hosts? It didn't work with him finally either. <laughs> we both got put in jail. <laughs> this is how long ago? Oh, I don't know, 97, something like uh-huh. that. Yeah. It wasn't one of my grander moments, I'll, I'll have to say. It was very, but it's funny in the telling, though. I was right out in front of my house on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, and about the time my my neighbors are coming home. There's that nice Mr. Ford sitting on the curb on Bourbon Street in handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. I find it so interesting that, um, you know, I mean, it's not surprising that you would, you know, Frank, a heck of a lot better than I do and that you would see maybe things. Maybe not. I don't, I don't. I think maybe I've demonstrated my, my, well, that <laughs> my cuss, inadequacy. That cussed side of his personality that I keep referring to and that makes other characters mad at him. Yeah. That That you don't see it that way is... Really amazing to me. It may be because um, I have a very unpleasant side, and I don't hold it against myself. I mean, I have a, I have a pugnacious side. Absolutely, I do. Yeah. And I don't hold it against myself. I, uh-huh. think it's, I think it's just fine that I'm that way, and that actually my wife wouldn't love me as much if I weren't that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, that came across in the New Yorker essay. You, you weren't at all bashful about that. No. Yeah. I, I grew up. In a really violent society. I grew up in the apartheid South. Violence was everywhere around me. Violence was the most normal thing in the world. If we weren't beating up on each other, we were beating up on black guys, and they were beating up on us. And so, uh, I mean, it was horrible. It was horrible and regrettable and unforgivable, really. And, And I have tried to, you know, I have tried to use the rest of my life, if not as an antidote to those things, at least as a passage which I can make use out of because of how I grew up. So that Frank should be cussed, as you said, doesn't surprise me at all, and neither does it surprise me that I would be kind of unaware of it. It seems so natural to human beings. I'm talking to Richard Ford about his latest novel, The Lay of the Land. We'll be back after a short break. Well, you you have um, situated each of these books at a kind of um, between-time in Frank's life, in a way. The first book starts after his child has died, after a divorce has taken place, after some of the shouting is over and before the next round of shouting begins. Independence Day, he's leading a bachelor life, but he's maybe on the verge of getting married, which he does offstage. And in this book, a lot more drama happens in the book. Yes. I mean, there are deaths, there are buildings that are bombed, buildings that are demolished, there are there's crime, there's violence. Yes. It's a big change. But I never thought about it. I mean, I didn't feel that in writing those first two books that I was sort of uh, setting a course for myself that that I had to follow. Um, I, I more or less um, wrote them intuitively. I mean, I, I would say that um, 
that I'm usually interested in the aftermath of events because I think that's where morality shows up quite vividly. We think it shows in the in the in the heart of the event itself, but usually it shows up vividly in how we accommodate it and reconcile ourselves to it and, and indeed understand it. But 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 that definitely was not the case in this book because I think my concerns my concerns were different kinds of concerns. Without even really completely intellecting it, I I was writing a book about a a country that I found to be extremely violent. And um, I do think America is an extremely violent place, somewhat understandably, somewhat inexplicably, but almost almost completely unwittingly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just sort of found its way into the book um, almost well, certainly not outside my control, but but found its way into the book quite naturally. Interesting. You have you have Frank say something that echoes what you just said. Actually, um, these and he's talking about these interludes, these quiet moments, are the very moments, of course, when large decisions get decided. Great literature routinely skips them in favor of seismic shifts, hysterical laughter, and worlds cracking open. And in that way, it does all of us a grave disservice. That's right. But you do have clouds parting. You have explosions happening, eruptions of various kinds. Well, that's right. But, I mean, that, it, that, that passage that you just read that doesn't mean to preclude that, that shit does happen. Yeah. And, 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 indeed, given the concerns that were permeating my, my thinking and my, my writing habits as I wrote this, which is to say a book set before 9-11, it, these were just inescapable concerns for me. You have these portents of 9-11. Two or three, I would say. Building falls down. Building falls Bombing. down. Bombing. Bombing. A girlfriend of Frank's daughter who works in the World Trade Center. That's right. And there's even one more, too. There's one more when some little kids are playing on the beach and they build a Sky, skyscraper out of sand. Oh yes, but but I I was trying to soft pedal that because I, I didn't think it was I didn't think it was persuasive dramatically, I, I, and I didn't want to make the book um, more than I thought was subtle. Um, portend mm-hmm. the nine nine eleven. I thought it did anyway, just by setting it in the year two thousand. But I really wanted to concentrate. Uh, not on the portent, but on the but on the lives that were being lived prior to that day, lives of sort of socked in uh, preoccupation with life's everyday pleasures and routines and and and, and businessy businessy concerns. Yeah, which yeah. I think which I think is which I think is um, probably fundamentally morally irresponsible of us of us as citizens. Complacency. Yeah, I think that that was a time when we were just doggedly not paying attention in America mm-hmm. because of all of these events that were going on around us, which we could properly contextualize so as to allow us to go on doing what we wanted to do most, buy new Suburbans, head off to Lake Havasu, you know, join the country club, play golf, sell our real estate. Pursuing happiness. Yeah. Pursuing our right to be happy, which most, as you as you pointed out quite correctly, which most other republics don't think they have a right. That is, 
many people in the world are still concerned about the pursuit of life, the first of those things in the Declaration of Independence and right. Religion, right. and liberty, uh, which seem to come prior. At least they think they are. <laughs> See, I, I, I'm, I'm not so sure that under the present government that we are very concerned about pursuing life. Mm. We certainly are mm. ex- extinguishing quite a few lives in our pursuit of life, theirs and ours. Well, Frank says at one point, our ongoing ignorance makes so much of life possible. There we are. But that's a principle he really lives by. Well, I, and I think it's a principle that we have to live by. I mean, we, we, we can't go around like a hedgehog, basically, bristling with every conceivable concern and worry that, that's alive in our brain or we'll, we'll never get any further than the hedgehog does. I mean, we, we have to subordinate some things. We have to quit worrying about some things, but, it's, but it's, it's, it's the wholesale willingness to quit worrying about the most important things that I find to be um, a national threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we do that. We, you know, I mean... I mean, I do it every night. I'm here I'm in California, so I'm, my, my sleep is off, and I wake up you know, like a light bulb at about 4, 4.30 in the morning, and I have to lie there for a while and suppress all of the things that come f- you know, fluttering up in my brain so I can go back to sleep. And, and that's just natural, it seems to me, and, and quite healthy that we should. You know, what they say about people who live long, not that I would want to live long, but that the ability to live long has much to do with your capacity to accept and go beyond loss. And forget? If you can. If you can. I'm not sure you can do that. Yeah. I mean, who, who can you forget who you loved and lost? No one. Mm. Um, Frank says the permanent period, one good thing about it is you, you realize that you can no longer mess things up. When you got the Pulitzer for Independence Day, I think uh, you were asked how it made you feel, and you said, like less of a fuck-up. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I generally think of myself. That's, that, that's, so if you ask me how Frank would describe me, that's how he would describe me, as a fuck-up. Oh, yeah. would he? Yeah, I think so, because that's how I sort of see myself. Yeah. Despite the literary success. Yeah, literary success doesn't have much to do with my sense of myself. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I've had good luck as a writer, but it, I never think of myself as anything more than lucky. Why should I? I mean, what, what, what possible good could it good could it bring to me to think anything more than that? I, I'm I'm dogged enough. I, I have good I have good work habits. I, I take what I do quite seriously. So I I don't need a heightened or exalted sense of myself to keep on being me. But I know that in your literary work, to some extent, you're measuring yourself against the great works, aren't you? But it, I don't think of it as measuring. I think yeah. of myself as um, trying to do my best. I once said, I was once on a panel in Georgia with three that happened to be female writers, all of whom had three names. It's, I always had to be very careful with women who have three names. And um, uh, they, they were all sort of romancy sort of novelists. And, and so I was being quite provocative, and I said to them, I said, let me ask you, as a group, we were on a stage in Atlanta. I said, do you, when you wake up in the morning, go to sit at your desk and think to yourself, here I'm going to do what Chekhov did? They all, they all got the fantods, immediately started fanning themselves and said, oh, my God, no, we couldn't possibly do that. And I said to them, then why bother? Hmm. Are there properties of, of Frank's character, of Frank Bascom's character that mystify you? I realize that in that in writing Frank's character that, that that there are parts of Frank if he were a person 
that I am not attending to. Um, there are plenty of attitudes that he has about other uh, other people and plenty of attitudes and beliefs that he has about other aspects of his life that I just never get around to. But um, those don't constitute a mystery for me. I mean, they may be a little bit of the sort of chiaroscura around him that the reader is is aware of, but for me... He's completely a contrivance made up of language, and he, um, and you know, J- James has a wonderful. Henry James has a wonderful line. He says, "Relations, by which he means relations between people, relations end nowhere." But it is for the writer, by a, ge- a geometry of his own, to circumscribe his characters in a way so as to make them seem to end, so that characters seem to be delineated. Whereas, in fact, we know that people aren't delineated. They go on having relations with others. They go on thinking thoughts that are off message. They they go on, they go on, they go on, whereas characters stop at the end of the book or they stop at the end of the story. And and that's the that's that's part of the artifice of making a character. He he doesn't have an existence for the writer beyond the existence the writer gives him. Yeah. It's a little I, I sometimes say that that it's a little like Edgar Bergen and Charlie, you know, that at the end of the act, Bergie puts Charlie back in his box, and that's the end of Charlie. I, I think it's really interesting that you that you that you phrase it this way. When I would contend that one of the things that distinguishes these books, and one of the reasons that Frank Bascom has become so interesting and so compelling for so many people, is the degree to which he seems to at least try to break out of that box. These books don't seem to want to end. They don't seem to want to contain him. They seem to want to overflow the boundaries of the novel. Yeah. Well, that may just mean that I'm good at my job. But but I will guarantee you, um, I'm trying to keep them inside. I'm trying to keep Charlie inside the lineaments of his little wooden self all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I think... Um, but I, th- I think it's also true that that characters uh, affect different readers different ways. We we know that, and ca- and readers bring their own histories, they bring their own preoccupations and likes and dislikes and memories to bear upon a character. And and some of the ways in which characters seem to take on life is is through the agency of those qualities that the readers have. But for me, I'm very much like a, a painter, I think, which is to say, what, what, when I look at Guernica, what I see are a lot of brush strokes, and I almost never can get far enough away from the canvas to be able to see the whole thing resolve into figures that are, that are absolutely fully delineated and real. So I, I'm, I'm very much a person who tries to stay close to the work and yet must always, at least from time to time, get away to sort of get a sense of what the reader's going to see. Well, to the extent that you leave this this work open for a reader. I don't know that I do that. I think the re- I don't think I leave it open. I I, I don't, don't think I leave it open at all. Don't you? No. Well, you have Frank each one of these novels much of the the drive, much of the 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 the, the, the impetus is Frank trying to sort things out the process of th- of sorting things out never getting them sorted out i mean not all anyway well frank has all these formulations right 
life is this way, life is that way, this is what you need to do at this stage of life, but he's constantly revising them. Because he understands, as you would understand if you did it, that they're innately provisional. Exactly. And what I want to say is, by making this very provisional structure, you have left you've, you've left space for readers to enter in a way that perhaps an, a much more determined kind of writing wouldn't. So in other words, it's not like Ayn Rand. <laughs> <laughs> to use an extreme example, yes. Well, oh, oh, okay. Oh, okay, but see, I, I would always say that that and I'll try to make this distinction clear that Frank is a man who 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 thinks provisionally but who is not for me uh, on the page provisional he is for me on the page completely finite he is completely uh, a relation that is circumscribed even though within that circumscription he does he does in fact make provisional assessments of life makes provisional attempts at consistent life makes provisional attempts at being a father a, a husband a, an ex-husband a realtor all those things so i i think maybe that there's some that there's some useful torque in the um, the, the distinction between uh, a completely finite character made up of words on the page who is within the within the terms of that finiteness dealing in provisionals all the time mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i and i'm i'm i may just be making mystery there but i think that's nonetheless true mm -hmm. i'd like you to talk a bit about a, a phrase that i think you've carried around a long time even before you used it in this book and that is human scale yeah i but i didn't know i'd carried it around maybe maybe you're more familiar with it than i am it, it seemed to me to come um along pretty much uh, at the end of this book um i um i heard an interview with you that's predates this book oh and you use that very term well um if the phrase if the phrase is is new my i guess my preoccupation with with trying to see things I think I said across a plane rather than looking up or looking down at things. I, I, I think that we have a not an obligation to ourselves, but we have an interest in trying to see the world as it is, trying to see the world clearly and straight on, uh, and and from the scale that we ourselves are, and um, and and so um, it's it's just it's just a way, it's just a figure of speech for. Um, trying to encourage clear-sightedness. How do you do that? How do you by see clearly? By trying to do it. By trying to do it. By, by realizing that you may have a capacity or a need not to do it. By, by not trusting in those uh, indices in life that would, that would give you false assurances. Um, by, by continually trying to say, am I seeing this clearly? In other words, ex existing in a condition of doubt about some things so as to try to clarify your view. Is that your discipline you're describing? Uh, trying to see as clearly as possible it's, what's really it's, happening? It's, mm, no, I don't think so. My, my habit in my practice is to try to write books which would induce um, a dialogue with a readership between the book and that reader, um, which would because of that dialogue, induce clear-sightedness, even if I don't have it myself. 
I'm just another bystander. So what's on the page doesn't necessarily have to be the uh, perfectly clear, undiluted truth. And I think by the way we've had this conversation, it must become very clear to anybody listening to this that it's not. Um, I mean, it's a book made by a human being about human beings. So it's going to be full of fallibility, mm-hmm. full of inconsistency, full of, to some extent, from time to time, wrongheadedness. Yeah. Well, on that yeah. note, Richard Ford, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, it certainly has been for me, Robert. Thank you. Well, there you have it, friends. Richard Ford from uh, an interview that first aired on this very date in 2006. And it reminds me that I have a lot of uh, older interviews full of interesting subjects and interesting people uh, that I've never put on my website, 7thAvenueProject.com. But I might have to just start doing that, sprinkling it in with the new stuff that I've got coming up. And I do have some uh, really good new interviews that I'll be airing and posting in the coming weeks. So those of you who pay attention, uh, forgive my irregular publishing schedule. It'll be worth your wait. Thanks for listening. And uh, happy Thanksgiving.